Throughout this season, we're going to be asking the question, to what extent is Miami considered an environmentally sustainable city? We're going to investigate, interrogate, and mitigate the effects of climate change. This is the Greencast, the Miami volume. I'm your host, Veronica Bloomberg, and today we're looking at how to define sustainability. Before we start, I just wanted to acknowledge that I could spend my entire life writing a book or hosting a series of podcasts on urban sustainability and still not encompass everything I want to. So for my research, I specifically chose certain definitions of sustainability and facets of infrastructure that I think encapsulate Miami's measures. Does this mean that sustainability stops at the end of the season? No. This is just the beginning, and I mean that both figuratively and literally. This mini-series is geared towards people who simply want to know more about sustainability in practice. No, you don't have to be a sustainability scholar, environmental justice warrior, civic engineer, environmental scientist, or any kind of expert to listen. You might have heard that a good portion of countries, companies, and industries have committed to being more sustainable like Walmart, Reformation, Glitter Companies, Starbucks, Apple, Redbubble China, the Netherlands, San Diego, and cities across the world have pledged to being more sustainable. But when we examine cities and their sustainability, we'll notice that there's a lot of complex components. Because 55% of people in the world today live in a city. That means people are traveling, using water, and throwing out trash every day. And on top of that, the battle against climate change will only make living in a city more difficult depending on where you are in the world. That doesn't stop us from urbanizing. If people are going to continue moving into cities, we must figure out how to make them a more environmentally sustainable option. But when we think about it, what really is a sustainable city? Sustainability is an extremely broad topic and is without a set meaning, which is why it has to be narrowly defined in terms of Miami's progress. For the purpose of this podcast, sustainability has a three-part definition. Sustainability is defined as the progress to create a living space that 1. is resilient to environmental setbacks, 2. has a minimal impact on the surrounding environment, and 3 is attainable and feedback-driven. A lot of the foundations for deriving Miami's definition of sustainability is accredited to the book The Sustainable City by Stephen Cohen. Cohen defines sustainability in a manner that any city can adopt and make their own. But Miami needs more than superordinate guidelines. For Miami to be considered an environmentally sustainable city, it has to be resilient to environmental setbacks. The Rockefeller's Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities, specifies that resilience means providing the opportunity for every person in every community to bounce back after large-scale shock events, and not only to survive, but thrive in the face of unknown challenges. Miami's infrastructure systems need to be able to efficiently rebound from environmental devastation to avoid long-term damage or city-wide debilitation. This entails being prepared for a devastation before natural disasters actually happen. That said, there are many ways to evaluate the cleanup and response methods after a hurricane hits. Many important factors include flood insurance or FEMA, but this is beyond the scope of my research. When I speak of resilience, I'm specifically talking about preventative measures. When the nonprofit 100 Resilient Cities speaks of being able to thrive in the face of challenges, 
That entails not being completely knocked down by a natural disaster in the first place. This is where the importance of the strength of Miami's infrastructure comes in. It faced test to its integrity every season through rising tides and hurricanes. Resilience is a critical factor in Miami's sustainability prospects because of issues perpetuated by climate change. Every year, it becomes an increasingly pressing issue. South Florida's tides have risen by four inches since 1992 and are expected to rise another seven by 2030. Considering that Miami Beach alone is only four feet above sea level, seven inches can be detrimental. King tides are also an annual problem that Miami residents have to face, and it gets worse every year. For those that aren't familiar with king tides, they're extremely high tides that are affected by the moon's distance to the earth. In Miami, this means the tides spill into the streets and make driving on roads near water very dangerous, and it holds up traffic. And the problem with king tides is only getting worse. Hurricanes, consequently, are a byproduct of the problem of rising sea levels because hurricanes are formed from warm water and warm air. Miami, consequently, is a lovely tropical climate and has both of these. As a result of Miami's perfect storm paradise, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, concludes that the intensity of hurricanes is expected to increase. They predict not to see more hurricanes, but more Category 4 and Category 5 hurricanes. Hurricanes are also economically devastating. Hurricane Irma back in 2017 costed Miami $467 million in repair damages which was followed by a relatively slow resilience process. But there was so much more in jeopardy. Hurricane Irma put about $21 billion of assets, like real estate, infrastructure, and businesses, at risk. Natural disasters and our response to climate change literally puts people's livelihoods on the line. But we have to consider resilience when trying to define sustainability because it determines the efficacy of Miami as a city. When people aren't able to get to their jobs because the streets are flooded or they have to rebuild their homes because a hurricane tore it down, the city and its residents become immobile and inefficient. Sustainability also has to be defined as having a minimal impact on the surrounding environment. This idea is somewhat self-explanatory, but Miami's infrastructure shouldn't severely damage the natural ecosystem. But the sustainability factor comes in because this ideal has to last. The current activity we partake in today shouldn't hinder the welfare or lifestyle of future generations. Ensuring city dynamics don't severely damage the natural ecosystem is crucial when defining sustainability. This is because it impacts how we interact with our existing infrastructure systems. Whether it's transportation or recreation, there are a lot of problems facing this coastal city but there are also a lot of possibilities. For example, the emission count in both the city of Miami and Miami Beach from transportation alone is a skyrocketing 48%. However, the popularity of trains in Miami is also rising, and this can be used as a way to curb cars and emissions. Also, going to the beach might be ideal for tourist attractions in Miami, but that activity can oftentimes be very pollutive. That said, the Perez Art Museum of Miami is rich both in amazing art and sustainable practices. Having a minimal impact within our infrastructure means enhancing the way we already live. 
not completely reinventing our living spaces. This can be accomplished through utilizing a multitude of solutions, like using green infrastructure, which uses biological materials to do the job of industrial equipment. By the way, green infrastructure is a critical topic to remember for later in the series. If we ignore the way our practices and lifestyle affect the environment, we ignore the prospect of sustainability. Sustainability has to finally be defined as being attainable and value-driven, which essentially means that achieving environmental soundness in a city has to be an intrinsic goal in nearly every aspect of that city, from its government projects to its residence activities. Author Stephen Cohen of The Sustainable City emphasizes that a key part of his definition of sustainability includes a set of values and perceptions that lead to consumption and behavioral choices that minimize human impact in the environment. Being environmentally conscious with a one-time goal to reach by 2050 simply isn't enough because that goal alone won't alter our practices in the long term. Essentially, sustainability can only take off as a practice when people become environmentally conscious in their decision-making. Some optimistically consider sustainability to come with ease, while others consider it a trade-off. However, that trade-off mentality oftentimes shuts down any conversation on being environmentally sustainable, especially when looking at the topic from an economic or practical standpoint. This mindset is some obvious because more often than not, the general public won't go out of their way to become more sustainable if it comes at an inconvenience to them. For example, people aren't incentivized in Miami to drive electric cars if they can't drive that far without a charging port. The social cost shouldn't try to be minimized and conventional economic reasoning shouldn't be bent. Creating environmentally sustainable cities is a practical objective, both economically and socially, because our living spaces are defined by how efficiently we interact with our surroundings. Environmental sustainability is a matter of behavior. A large focal point in Cohen's book is the importance of behavior change to continue sustainable practices in an urban setting. Sustainability needs to be a mindset. People have to feel as if being environmentally conscious isn't an obligation, but a capability. Fortunately, we can get to that path. A study from the Center of Sustainable Business from New York University's Stern School of Business shows that consumers are gravitated towards sustainability in the marketplace. In fact, products that were marked with sustainable practices sold six times faster than their conventional counterparts. This shows how the will of the people plays such a large role in the future of sustainable efforts, and how sustainability doesn't have to come at a social cost, meaning an inefficiency or expense. When people feel that being environmentally conscious is in their realm of capabilities, it no longer becomes a burden, but it becomes a behavior. Shaping sustainability through attainable behavior changes formidably puts people on a path towards an environmentally conscious city with a common goal in mind. When looking at Miami's circumstances, we have to question how we even define sustainability to begin with. The best answer is that sustainability should be a series of behaviors and practices that are 1. Resilient to environmental disturbances. 2. Minimally impacting the natural ecosystems. And three, attainable and value-driven. Being sustainable isn't just a one-sided effort by a city government, but a synergetic effort 
one in which the government, the private sector, and the environment all benefit from. At the end of the day, the welfare of our environment dictates the welfare of our lifestyle, meaning we have to be sustainable, not just to prevent future damage, but also to maintain the way we live. The reality is, the longer people, both in the public and private sector, put off sustainable efforts, the harder it's going to be to clean up. Since we're focusing on Miami, a place that prides itself on its tropical climate, the environment is one of the main factors we have going for us. We literally cannot afford to lose our environment, because then we all lose. This is why it's so critical that we examine our existing systems and our infrastructure. This is part one of the Greencast, the Miami volume. I'm your host, Veronica Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Our music was made by NSU University School students Peter Coltis, Ali Uchuya, Christina Mineri, and Brian G. Those are all high school sophomores and juniors that made professional quality music and they're extremely talented. Special thanks to Ms. Ann Sowers for her brainstorming, revising, and overall support for the production of this series. Like most kids, one of my fondest memories when I was little was going to Disney World. It was 2005 on a dark and stormy morning. When my mom woke me up at 4.30 in the morning, packed the car, and set off to Orlando. By 8 a.m., with a princess tiara on my hand, I was walking into the gates of the Magic Kingdom. While I did have my fair share of Mickey Waffles, Splash Mountain rides, and princess meet-and-greets, I wasn't just there for a weekend getaway. My mom took me because Hurricane Wilma was coming in, and she knew we were going to lose power and the streets were going to be flooded. And that's exactly what happened. While driving down to South Beach along the intercoastal, the streets were flooded and the power lines were down, and I was fortunate enough to get away, but not everyone had the same opportunity. And then the same thing happened in 2017 with Hurricane Irma, except this time without Disney World. And rather than just the streets near the water being flooded, my own neighborhood had inches of water, downed power lines, and fallen trees. But a few months after Hurricane Irma, the drains that ran under the streets of my neighborhood were updated to prevent another flood. The power of infrastructure strikes again. Throughout this season, we're going to be asking the question, to what extent is Miami considered an environmentally sustainable city? We're going to investigate, interrogate, and mitigate the effects of climate change. This is The Greencast, the Miami volume. I'm your host, Veronica Bloomberg, and today we're looking at problems of water management. This isn't the first time Miami has had to rethink their water management. Hurricane Andrew in 1992 was a wake-up call for the municipality. After the hurricane hit, over 25,000 homes were completely destroyed, and another 101,000 homes were damaged from wind and water. There was this massive realization among municipal governments that more can be done leading up to a natural disaster, especially for Miami and South Florida, a hurricane. Preventative measures can be taken. So, following Andrew, building codes across the county were updated. Structures needed to be built with wind and hurricane impact glass, and more cement had to be used for fortification. Just as Hurricane Andrew taught us to update our standards, current projections should teach us the same lesson. We're facing another Andrew-sized revelation. As I mentioned in the first episode of Defining Sustainability, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration predicts an increase in frequency of Category 4 and 5 hurricanes to hit Miami. 
This doesn't mean more hurricanes will occur, but of the hurricanes that will hit South Florida, more of them will be Category 4 and Category 5 in the future, meaning that more intense hurricanes will occur. More intense hurricanes means more water. Not only do we have to prepare for the storms themselves, but we also have to manage the water to avoid the problems of flooding, ruining homes, water damage, waterfront destruction, and unsafe drinking water. Of the many effects of excess stormwater can have on a city, the two most pressing issues Miami faces are flooding and stormwater pollution. It's no secret that when there's a hurricane in Miami, it will flood. However, the problem has exacerbated recently because the infrastructure like the pumps, pipes, and drains that actually filter out the stormwater is out of date. Similarly, stormwater pollution is also becoming a serious problem for the city. Stormwater pollution occurs almost every time there's rainfall. Whenever it rains, water washes off the dirt and chemicals of our urbanization. This includes oil, litter, vehicle fluids, and other chemicals. These chemicals would usually be absorbed by the ground and natural systems, but since Miami is so urbanized with buildings, constructions, and concrete, there is less grass and other natural elements. This is an overlooked point, but it's very simple. Concrete can't absorb water, which makes the problem of stormwater pollution tremendously worse. Urbanization severely impacts the natural flood and toxic drainage of our systems, thus perpetuating the problems of flooding and stormwater pollution. Now, keep in mind, I haven't even factored in the problem of sea level rise. Miami is ground zero for sea level rise, and I mean that literally because we're basically zero feet above sea level. In fact, the Center for Climate Integrity labeled Florida the most at-risk state for sea level rise. The bedrock of Florida, unlike that of the rest of the country, is limestone, which is a very porous mineral that absorbs water. This makes fighting sea level rise a complex and uphill battle because the higher the water is, the more the land will absorb. Besides the fact that Florida's foundation is not as stable, the water is rising at an increasingly fast rate. So here's a fun fact about Miami's waters. There are sensors and buoys in the water that collect data every six minutes, which is kind of like a Fitbit slash Apple Watch for the ocean, if you think about it. And they've tracked that the waters have risen 8 inches since 1950, which is a very noticeable difference since people are living and driving right next to the water. So let's stop for a minute and see what 8 inches of water really looks like. It's common in Miami to have severe flooding on a clear day, a phenomenon called sunny day flooding, or a severely high tide known as a king tide that will cause seawater to overflow in the streets where people are driving through traffic and a layer of water. So carpool is taken literally in Miami. In the past 10 years, it's been rising at an even faster rate, one inch every year. So you're probably thinking that one inch isn't that much, but considering that Miami Beach alone is only four feet above sea level, one inch a year will add up quickly. It took 30 years for the water to rise six inches, But now, the water is expected to rise another 6 inches in the next 10 to 15 years. Overall, the water is rising faster than the city can fix its infrastructure, which means Miami has less time to prepare. 
These extra six inches over the next 10 years have catastrophic repercussions, like property values declining or people losing their homes and severely bad infrastructure that won't work in our favor. As of now, the infrastructure in place to protect residents from flooding and unsafe water are subpar. The seawalls, which are physical walls that protect the shoreline, are the coast's first line of defense against uncontrolled waters, but they're beginning to weaken. This is because the existing seawalls are over 50 years old and were built for lower tides with cheaper materials like limestone and concrete. Yes, that is the same limestone that I talked about earlier. That's the rock that takes in a lot of water, yet it's being built to keep out water. The structures meant to keep out water were absorbed with a material that absorbs water. Smart engineering. Currently, the sea levels, or rather the sea walls, are deteriorating. There are cracks, voids, missing concrete, and misalignments within Miami seawalls. Now, the stormwater system as a whole is below average, and I mean that in the most elementary way. The 2017 Infrastructure Report Card gave Florida's water system a D. This is because the state isn't able to address all of the system's problems, which is why it's so crucial for municipalities like Miami to have to do some of the heavy lifting themselves. More importantly, stormwater infrastructure is overloaded and aging. This poses a crucial problem because if the storms are projected to be more intense and the tides are rising, the stormwater pumps and drains are going to be pushed to their breaking points and fail. In fact, we're beginning to see that now. Just this past July, one of the pumps in Miami Beach broke and dumped water runoff, including oil, debris, pesticides, and organic waste into Biscayne Bay. This is evident that the problem of stormwater pollution isn't far-fetched or distant, but is happening now. All of these problems coincide with one another. Rising sea levels paired with intense hurricanes will obviously put more stress on our existing infrastructure. None of this information should be groundbreaking, because these systems will obviously perform worse if the infrastructure is outdated and conditions are severe. Similar to the situation after Andrew, we have to update our standard ways of living and infrastructures in order to be resilient and prepared for dire situations. However, we shouldn't have to be knocked down like we were in Andrew to start taking action. To hear about how to prevent this city from sinking, check out the next episode, Solutions to Water Management. This is The Greencast. I'm your host, Veronica Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Today's music was made by NSU University School students, Peter Coltis, Ali Uchuya, Christina Mineri, and Brian G. Thank you to Ms. Sowers for revising and organizing the sequencing of this episode.